This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. Why do you want to go to heaven anyway? I like it down here. Why do you want to go? I want to go to heaven because I want somebody to stop this train. No more living with the realization that all relationships come to an end. I want to do what Revelation 22 explains or describes. I want to go to heaven and I want to see the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hi and welcome. You're listening to Today with Jeff Fines. My name's Aaron. Today we bring you more in the short series about heaven. In Pastor Jeff's message, he's thinking about what heaven will be like and the reason he wants to go to heaven. The passage he's in today is Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Let's begin now. There's a place in the outskirts of Cairo, Egypt. Uh, it's a village called Makatum. And the villagers make up basically a large portion of the Christian population in Egypt, somewhere about 10%. They live in the slums. Uh, they pick through the trash looking for treasures on which to survive. There's so much poverty, disease, and also much praise to God for his provision. The origins of this place called Makatum, fascinating to say the least. There's a story of where the aggressive Muslims came down uh, to evict the Christ followers out of this area from around this mountain. And not wanting any more bloodshed, they basically said to the Christ followers, look, it says in your Bible, in your New Testament, that Jesus claimed that if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could move this mountain. So if you can move this mountain, you can stay. And the story goes that the Christians got together and they prayed and they prayed and there was an earthquake, small but noticeable. And the rest of the story is because the mountain had moved, they were allowed to stay. They're still there to this day. A place called Makatum, Christ followers who survive in very impoverished conditions but have great passion because of what they believe about Jesus. Now what's interesting about this, about 60 years ago, the residents of Makatum who live there stumbled across this old oak quarry. A lot of people believe that this rock quarry, rather, is the place where the mountain began to shake. And so they started building a place underground where they could assemble together as Christ followers. They built a church. It's still standing to this day. They moved over 140,000 tons of rock they blasted dynamite at the same town at the same time as the loud noise of the Ramadan feast so as to distract the guards. A Polish sculptor came in and built all of these beautiful sandstone images on the cliffs around the rock quarry throughout the caves. It's, a, it's an oasis of beauty in a desert of poverty. And still to this day, on the weekends, on a Sunday, thousands upon thousands, some have estimated close to 33,000 people gather in this place throughout the entire weekend, underground church to worship. They continue to this day to be oppressed, persecuted. They continue to make their livings out of going through the trash heaps and finding something that might be valuable. 
And all the while, if you were to travel there today and you were to talk to them, they would tell you that God is good and that this is the way the world operates. And they are waiting for their homeland, believing that the story of Jesus is the best story that's ever been told, trusting that no matter how difficult the chapters of their lives become, they will never outweigh the beautiful, glorious ending that will be ushered in in the kingdom of Jesus, a place we've been talking about called heaven. The C.S. Lewis described as they describe still today, the beginning of the real story that no one has ever read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. The remarkable thing about Mokotam is they end their services every week by a cry. They raise their hands, and one half of the congregation will shout the name Yeshua, Jesus, Yeshua, and the other will say, come. So they say, Yeshua, come, Yeshua, come. And that's the way they end their services, waiting for the day for this place called heaven. In our mind, the question we ask is, when, is, when does the story of all stories begin? I find it amazing. You know, every, every year around the month of September, I go away in what is called a study break, and I will spend time praying that God will communicate to me through prayer and scripture reading the sermons he wants me to deliver to his people throughout the coming year. And I find it almost supernatural and that we would be in a series about heaven and about how fragile life is at the precise time that we are in the midst of such a horrible disease. We don't have all the answers. We do know that 99% of the pain and suffering in the world comes from what we do to each other. We often blame God but we are the culprits. And while we scream out, why God? I think God looks down and says, why man? Why does he abuse his neighbor for land and for power? Christ's followers, like the people who live in Makatam, under enormous stress and impoverished, like them, we too believe that we've discovered the answer to life's biggest questions of origin. We came from God. We are created in his image. The meaning of our life is to serve and praise and worship him and to help people far from God come close to him. Morality is based on the parameters that Jesus brought in revelation and redemption, that if we live according to his precepts, we will have the abundant life. And destiny, ultimately, destiny is to return to our homeland, the place we intrinsically know that we lost, and we spend our entire life searching to get back home. But what of the homeland? That's what we're talking about, heaven. What about it? And when does it start? When I was in high school playing basketball, one of my buddies would often mock me because coach would let me leave practice early on a Wednesday so that I could attend church. And one time, one of my basketball buddies came back to me and said, Jeff, why do you, why do you go to church, man? It's because you want to go to heaven, right? And why do you want to go to heaven? In his mind, you go to church to earn merits so that you can be good enough that God would accept you. He knew nothing about grace. In his mind, that's the reason he believed I was going to church. He said, why do, you, why do you want to go to heaven anyway? I like it down here. Basketball, girls, parties. Why do you want to go? So I thought this weekend, after spending so much time in great detail, that I would answer that question based on a wonderful passage of Scripture in Revelation 21 and 22. You know why I want to go to heaven? I want to go to heaven because I want to see someone stop this train. One of my favorite art, musical artists is John Mayer. He writes a song. Even in his, when he's very young, he shows the depth of thought. Even when he's very young, he struggles with the aging process. And in Mayer's song called Stop This Train, 
One of the lines goes, I don't know how else to say it. I don't want to see my parents go one generation's length away from fighting life out on my own. He says, stop this train. I want to get off and go home again. I can't take the speed that it's moving in. I know I can't, but honestly, won't someone stop this train? At a young age, he seems painfully aware of fading lives. He begs for a respite. Somebody to push the pause button and say, just stop a minute. Life is moving too fast. And then he moves on to the lines that I think sum up at best. And it shows he has great depth of thought. Again, he says, once in a while, when it's good, it'll feel like it should. When you're all still around and you're all safe and sound and you don't miss a thing till you cry when you're driving away in the dark, singing, stop this train. I want to get off and go home again. He knows that even in the very best moments, when we're with the people we love and the family and our moms and our dads, that it's only temporary and one day that will fade. I want to go to heaven if someone were to ask me that. I want to go to heaven because I've grown weary of this train. No more children watching their parents fade away. In fact, the most traumatic event of my life was when I lost my mom. Leaning down by her hospital bed and begging my mother not to leave. I was still in my 30s. And I couldn't understand why someone so young would be fading away. And I begged her. I said, please, mom, don't leave. Don't leave. It was like I was a child again without any inhibitions. And then I began to see the tears roll down her face. And I spoke louder and more passionately because I, I thought I was having or doing some good. But then when she breathed her last breath, I remember feeling this overwhelming pain that I did not realize I could hurt that much and still be alive. There was a deep, Sadness, a darkness, a loss, a sense of belonging seemed to fade away. And now here I am, a much older man. And the thing that I fear most is not death, but the pain that my death will cause to my children and the people that I love and left behind. I find myself crying the same thing. Will somebody stop this train? I sat by my father's bed and I listened to him talk about how he wanted to go and be with Jesus, how, how much he missed my mother. And, and he said, I, I really am torn. I want to go and be with your mom. But I also know my responsibility. My father grew up in a generation when dads knew that the ultimate call on their life was to do whatever it would take to protect the family, to keep the family secure, and to provide for them till your very last breath. I watched my father as he struggled the last two years of his life to breathe having to carry an oxygen tank around with him and continually torn between staying here and protecting his children and going on to be with Jesus, to be with mom. Finally, one evening, I knew my dad was holding on. I said to my father at the advice of a colleague, you know, dad, don't hold on anymore. You've been suffering long enough. It's okay. You can go on and be with mom. You can be with Jesus. You've been a good father. You've raised us well. You provided for us well. You did everything God called you to do as a father. Now go and be with mom. He smiled and my father died later that night. But the pain was still deep. Now both my parents are gone and I'm still young. And I know that heaven is good and I'm happy that my parents are there, but I think about them every day. I want them back. I want to be with them. I want to shoot hoops with my father. I want to take walks by the river with my mom. I want to sit around the table with mom and dad and my brothers and my family and talk about anything on a Sunday afternoon. 
I think my daughter feels the same thing. Thank God for FaceTime, things like that. But we had one final day left together in India. Then she knew she would be going back to Kazakhstan and I would be returning to Los Angeles. So I asked her, what is the one thing you'd like to do on this last day together? She said, Dad, I'd like to find a park in New Delhi and just walk together. She thought I was old and I wouldn't understand that, but I understood it completely. We found a park and we walked and we talked. She told me later that that was a day that she would never forget. But in my age, it was also a day that I knew would end, that this too would be no more, that walks with my daughter would pass, they would fade. I want to go to heaven because I want somebody to stop this train. No more overarching death. No more living with the realization that all relationships come to an end. I long for endless hoop shooting. <laughs> I long for endless walks by the river with people that I love. Walks through the park. No more watching people I love die, some of whom I'll never see again. I want to do what Revelation 22 explains or describes. I want to go to heaven and I want to see the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Do you know what God is doing here in Revelation 22? He's taking us back to the book of Genesis, the tree of life, before sin, before death, where life is never interrupted by death, where there's eternal life flowing from the throne of God and from the throne of the Lamb, an endless source of life and vitality, producing 12 crops, the number 12 representing the people of God, 12 disciples, 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God, and it's always producing fruit, enough food for the people of God. 12 months, 12 seasons. Life everlasting in the city of God. And the tree of life on both sides of the river for the healing of the nations. No more watching the people I love die. No more concern that somebody that I love may fade away or that something would happen to me and I would cause pain in the lives of my loved one. No more crying as I drive away in the dark. But I want to go to heaven also because I want to see an end to the hunger and the death of the children of the world. I'm 55 years old now and I've had my fill of the suffering of children. I don't know how much more of this I can take, what we're doing to each other. I try to put it out of my head like you do with the preoccupation of the busyness of life. And man has convinced me after 55 years of living that no matter how advanced we become, we will still never be able to create this utopian dream. But instead, the heart is wicked. And the more advanced we become, the more advanced means we develop for power and control. Remember what John Lennox said, the coronavirus is very rapidly demolishing the illusion that we can build perfection on earth. For the past 3,400 years, humans have been entirely at peace for only 268 years. That's 8%. 92% of human history, we've been killing each other. 108 million people have been killed in wars in the 20th century alone. 100 billion people have been killed throughout human history by our inability to produce peace. Some of you will remember in the 1940s, the United Nations was supposed to be ushered in and then they were supposed to bring in peace and harmony. And yet we've had more death and war and bloodshed since their inauguration in this generation than in all generations combined before. 
the Economic Forum recently released their findings that the real cause of hunger and famine is not a shortage of food, that the earth produces 12 times over enough food to feed everyone on planet earth, but the real problem is war and corrupt governments. The problem is not God and a lack of provision. In fact, last year, the World Bank revised its position on conflict, upgrading it from being one of the drivers of suffering to the primary driver of suffering and poverty. And so in our world today, every hour of every day, 300 children die because of hunger. 300 children die every hour of malnutrition. And this is ridiculous. We have the resources to feed the world hundreds of times over. What is the problem? The heart of man, the wickedness, the corruption. We use God-given resources to build tanks and firearms and to destroy each other and primarily to increase personal wealth. And the reason I want to go to heaven is because I'm told in the scripture that the only time this is ever going to end is when we are in the new kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. That one day the, the children won't suffer anymore. Does that mean I'm not going to fight for justice while I'm here? Absolutely, I'm going to fight for justice because Christians believe that heaven is the restoration of all things here, not consolation up there. We pray that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we also, we know that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven when it's done through the lives of his people. We Christ followers believe that compassion, empathy, and justice, that's the calling on our lives. And it will come to earth when it comes into our lives, when we bring up there, down here. And we long for heaven, a return to that country that was once our home, where according to Micah chapter 4, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone who will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, that's a, a picture of peace, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. I want to go to heaven. I want to see an end to the pain and the suffering and the malnutrition of children. I want to go to heaven because I want to see an end to the dark night of the soul. I recently met with a young man who had served in Afghanistan. We sat over in the one and all cafe, had a coffee together. Within 10 minutes, I noticed there had been a significant change in him. It brought a great sadness to me. A gentle, kind soul had become so hardened not only in his attitude, but is in his language. I was so sad. But I realized at the same time, this was no time for judgment. I tried to imagine the things he has seen. I tried to imagine how many times his life would have been near the end. I tried to imagine the fear and the trauma and the death all around. But then I realized I couldn't. There's no way I could understand or comprehend what he's been through unless I've walked in his boots. And the reality is there are so many men and women on planet earth who've suffered dramatic events in their lives and it makes it extremely difficult for them to return to any sense of normality. The soul has become darkened by the things the eyes have seen. And I want to read to you a letter from a sister at a, uh, a house that worked with girls who were trapped in drug scene and prostitution. She said, 
She came to our front door Tuesday morning dressed in dirty rags, holding a little aluminum paint can in her arms. From the second she stepped inside our shelter, she mystified us. Whatever she did, wherever she went, the paint can never left her hands. When Kathy sat in the crisis shelter, the can sat in her arms. She took the can with her to the cafeteria that first morning and to bed with her that first night she slept. When she stepped into the shower, the can was only a few feet away. When the tiny homeless girl dressed, the can rested alongside her feet. I'm sorry, this is mine, she told our counselors whenever asked about it. This can belongs to me. Do you want to tell me what's in it, Kathy? I'd ask her. Mm, not today, she said. Not, not today. When Kathy was sad and angry or hurt, which happened a lot, she took her paint can to a quiet dorm room on the third floor. The can held tightly in her arms. Sometimes she'd talk to the paint can in quiet whispers. I've been around troubled kids all my life, says the sister. I'm used to seeing them carry stuffed animals. Some of the most tough and rough kids, hardened kids, carry something that they can hug. Every kid has something, needs something to hold. But a paint can? I could feel the alarm bells ringing in my head. Early this morning, I decided to accidentally run into Kathy again. Would you like to join me for breakfast, I asked. Kathy said that would be great. And for a few minutes, we sat in the corner, in the cafeteria, talking quietly. In the midst of a den of over 150 ravenous kids, homeless kids. Then I took a deep breath and plunged into it. Kathy, I said, that's a really nice can. What's in it? For a long time, Kathy didn't answer. She just rocked back and forth, her hair swaying across her shoulders. Then she looked at me with tears in her eyes and she said, it's my mother. Oh, I said, what do you mean it's your mother? It's my mother's ashes. I went and got them from the funeral home. See, I even asked them to put a label right there on the side. It has her name on it. Kathy held the can up before my eyes. A little label on the side chronicled all that remained of her mother, date of birth, date of death, name. That was it. And then Kathy pulled the can close to her and hugged it. Kathy said, sister, I really never knew my mom. I mean, she threw me in the garbage two days after I was born. I ended up living in a lot of foster homes mad at my mom. But then I decided to go find her. I got lucky. Someone knew where she was living, so I went to her house. She wasn't there, sister. My mother was in the hospital. She had AIDS. She was dying. I went to the hospital. I got to meet her that day, the day that she died. And my mother's sister told me that last moment I spent with her that she loved me. Kathy said crying, sister, she told me that she loved me. The sister goes on in parenthetical phrases to say that we double-checked Kathy's story. Everything she said was true. The New York papers ran a story saying the police had found an infant girl in the dumpster. And yes, it was two days after Kathy had been born. I reached out to hug Kathy and she cried in my arms for a long time. It was tough getting my arms around her because she wouldn't let go of the paint can. But that, I didn't seem to mind and she didn't seem to mind either. Can you imagine the journey that Kathy will embark upon? The depression and the anxiety which lay ahead. Kathy will have to navigate these events the rest of her life. There's no doubt that Jesus can walk with her through it, but the fact remains she's still gonna have to do a lot of walking. 
The journey will be long. It will be taxing. It will be exhausting. She will spend the rest of her life desperately in pursuit of love. And she will never find it until she finds it in Jesus. Sometimes the scars of traumatic events in our lives we carry with us for the rest of our lives. Even Christ's followers, a mother who abandons us, a father who walks out on us, a wife who betrayed us, a husband who cheated on us. Some wounds go deep and you carry them with you. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. As we, as we talk about heaven, there's just a great concern that I have that we in the West worship him from a distance. We respect him, but there's no intimacy. There's no relationship. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.